0: You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso.
1: After a year-long legal battle and insistence on their innocence, Full House star Lori Loughlin and her husband, fashion designer Massimo Giannulli, gave up and pleaded guilty to paying half a million dollars in bribes to get their two daughters into the University of Southern California as fake crew stars, even as prosecutors announced that a 25th parent would admit guilt in the sprawling case. Under their proposed deals, Lachlan will spend two months in prison and pay a $150,000 fine, and Gianulli will spend five months in prison and pay a $250,000 fine. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner in McCarter & English. They put on such a fierce defense, challenging the prosecution again and again. Why throw in the towel at this point?
2: Yeah, Lori Lachlan and her husband, Massimo Gianulli have fought this tooth and nail from the moment that they were charged. And now after almost a year, they decided to change their minds and enter a guilty plea. They fought the government by challenging whether the prosecution should have been brought in Massachusetts rather than in California where they're located. They also challenged the government that had named dozens of other parents in the same charging document along with them. The only thing that tied all these parents together was the fact that they all had been involved with Mr. Singer, who was the mastermind, who ultimately cooperated with the government. But the last bid that these defendants raised was they challenged the government over what they called outrageous government misconduct, which was some discovery that the government was late in turning over. When that was denied, they changed their minds and decided to plead guilty.
1: They were facing trial in October, and the prosecutors had recorded conversations and emails. Did they see that there was too much evidence to explain away? The evidence against Lachlan and Giannulli did appear to be overwhelming.
2: The problems the defendants faced in this case is that they had some very damaging emails that they had sent to various people. For example, Giannulli had forwarded the $200,000 invoice from Mr. Singer, the scammed mastermind, to his financial advisor and included a note saying, Good news, my daughter is in SC. Bad is I had to work the system. There also was an email from Lori Lachlan to her daughter saying she shouldn't discuss the way she got into USC with her college guidance counselor. And so it appeared that there was some damaging evidence which showed consciousness of guilt on their part. And ultimately, there was even a photograph of one of their daughters looking like she was on a rowing machine since she was being admitted to the school as a rower when in fact she was not rowing at all. Ultimately, this is going to be very damaging evidence and likely difficult to overcome at trial. The strategy here with the defense was to try to see whether there was some way to knock this case out prior to trial. They brought these charges against the government saying that there was government misconduct. They tried to knock the case out in other ways by arguing that they shouldn't have been charged along with dozens of other parents. But ultimately, when all those legal strategies did not pan out, I think that's why they changed their mind and decided to enter the plea.
1: Bob, we often talked about Felicity Huffman being a parent that right away said, I'm guilty, I'm sorry, and took her medicine. Are they still getting a sweetheart deal, a good deal, even though they fought the system for a year, tooth and nail, as you say?
2: Well, there have been 37 parents charged in this overarching scheme, and to date, 24 of them have pleaded guilty. As you mentioned, Felicity Huffman, received two weeks in jail, was one of the first to step up and immediately acknowledge her guilt. The longest sentence so far that's been handed down was nine months for former PIMCO CEO Douglas Hodge. So the range in terms of sentencing has really been from two weeks to nine months. This sentence here, which is two months for Lori Lachlan and five months for her husband, kind of falls in the middle. But they did fight this charge. For over a year, they did battle the government by filing multiple motions to try to get these charges dismissed or altered. And ultimately, it seems that they got the same type of deal that most of these parents have been offered so far in this case.
1: Doesn't that send the wrong message from prosecutors? Doesn't that send a message that you can keep fighting us every which way over and over again, but we'll still give you a good deal rather than the message that you might expect, which is plead early? and you'll get a good deal.
2: Often the rule is that if you're going to get the best deal in a criminal case, that comes early on. And if you put the government to its test, if you make them respond to motions, and if you fight them right up until the day of trial, usually the deal is not so attractive. And prosecutors do that because they try to get people to enter into these plea deals early on. If everybody makes them do all the work to try to prepare for trial it becomes an overwhelming task for them, and they try to encourage people to come in early, and they try to encourage people to cooperate when cooperation is something that's on the table for them. Here, though, they do have many, many parents who were charged in this case, and ultimately I think they're looking for pleas that send people to jail, that send the signal that even though most of these parents were very wealthy, most of these parents paid an awful lot of money to try to get their children to school, that they're not above the law, that they have to pay fines in connection with these guilty pleas, and they ultimately have to serve time in jail. The amount of time in jail, you could argue, is somewhat less than maybe perhaps another defendant in a similar case might have received. But here, the government, I think, is looking at the overall charges, looking at the number of, ch- of cases they have here, and trying to come up with some fair resolution that includes jail time for each of these defendants. And so far, that's what they've achieved.
1: Why is Giannuli getting a much stiffer sentence when they were obviously in this together?
2: In entering their guilty pleas, Lori Lockwood admitted to a single count of conspiracy to commit wire and mail fraud, while her husband, Mr. Giannuli agreed to plead guilty not only to wire and mail fraud, but also a charge of conspiracy to commit honest services fraud. That accounts for her sentence of two months and his agreed sentence of five months. Ultimately, the government here believed that Mr. Giannuli was more involved in these payments than his wife, and that's why we see this disparity in terms of the recommended sentences. But remember also that these are agreed upon sentences only between the defendants and the government. It's ultimately up to the judge as to what sentence will be handed down in this case.
1: The judge is reading the pre-sentence reports. Do you think he will stick to the plea deal in this case? Is there any way of telling with this judge?
2: Well, with all cases, when a plea is entered, a judge makes clear that whatever deal the defendants have with the government is something that does not bind the court, and that the judge will not make up its mind until it reads the pre-sentence report. But the judge is also mindful of the fact that in order to get these plea deals, it's important that defendants be able to rely upon the government's recommendation with some degree of certainty. So here I think we can expect the, the judge to ultimately follow the government's recommendation and to sentence these defendants to the terms that were agreed upon by the government. But one of the things that is unusual here is that typically the government will agree to a range of sentencing. In other words, the federal sentencing guidelines has ranges of months that apply to a particular sentence based upon various factors. In this case, in order to entice these defendants to take this plea, the government is taking the somewhat unusual step of recommending a particular sentence of two months and five months as opposed to a range of sentencing.
1: The government is also leaving open the defendant's ability to advance claims of ineffective assistance of counsel and prosecutorial misconduct. Is that unusual?
2: Yes, that is unusual. Usually the way plea deals read is that you enter your plea and you give up your right to challenge the sentence unless it's outside the agreed upon range that you have agreed to the government with. But in this case, they've thrown that in. I think it really is more window dressing than it is any real right for the defendants. The likelihood that there will be an ultimate finding of any kind of prosecutorial misconduct is remote, and it's even more remote that there could be some finding of ineffective assistance of counsel, given the lawyers who were involved in the case. So it really is something that the defendants are holding out there in case something might come up later in the case that shows that prosecutors acted in some way that was inappropriate, but it's unlikely ultimately to have, to have any real effect on the outcome of this case or the amount of time that these two defendants serve in jail.
1: Is it possible that they will serve less time because of COVID-19?
2: Well, it's possible that they could serve less time due to COVID-19, and it's possible that the judge could sentence them to something less than what they've agreed to with the government. In this case, given the high degree of publicity and the fact that this had been fought out between the government and the defense for over a year, these are sentences that are in the eyes of some people on the low end of where these cases should have ended up. I think it's more likely that the judge will sentence them to exactly the amount of time that they've agreed to with the government and that they will serve the full amount of that time. The COVID-19 issue is obviously something that the parties are aware of going into this deal. So for the defense to then argue that because of COVID-19, they should serve less time seems to be somewhat disingenuous, and I think it's unlikely to sway the court.
1: As we get closer and closer to two trials that are scheduled for October and January, Is it likely that we'll see more plea deals?
2: Well, that's certainly what the government is hoping for here. Usually you see a bit of a domino effect as you see defendants begin to plead guilty. But each of these cases is somewhat different factually. The charges stem from paying off uh, the mastermind of this case in order to get their children into school, some of them posing as athletes. Some of them just making large contributions to this foundation that were really disguised brides to Mr. Singer. So each case is factually different. But on the other hand, there's certainly going to be some defendants who are sitting out there looking at what's going on and saying if Lori Loughlin and her husband are deciding to plead guilty, given all the money that they have and given the high price legal talent that was representing them, maybe they should consider doing the same.
1: You know, Bob, also what might make some defendants want to plead is that they're going to be tried in groups, and that is a disadvantage for the defendants.
2: Yeah, that is one of the key motions that was made early on in this case by all the defendants, the fact that they were indicted in groups and going to be tried with dozens of other parents that they had absolutely no contact with whatsoever. The government's theory behind that case was because the common mastermind, William Singer, was the one who brought them all together, that they could use him as a cooperating witness in one trial against all of the parents. The prosecution here was trying to avoid having Mr. Singer testify over and over again in repeated trials. During each trial, he would likely give testimony that was slightly different from the trial before, and that would give defense lawyers ammunition to try to attack his credibility. So they were indicted in groups, and there's two large groups who are still set to go to trial in this case. That does place the defendants in a bit of a disadvantage because there's something to argue that because one parent might be guilty, then they all might be guilty. That's called prejudicial spillover. It's something defense lawyers try to argue against all the time. Usually, if there's a reason for the judge to uphold the way the government has charged the case, he'll go along with prosecutors and allow these parents to be tried in groups. If that continues to be the case, if the judge does not agree to separate these trials out into individual cases, it makes it more likely that the parents will ultimately plead guilty.
1: Why do you think the prosecutors never indicted any of the students here? I mean, in some of these cases, the students had to have known that they don't row And they're applying to school as rowing stars. Why aren't the kids being indicted as well?
2: Well, that's a good question. A lot of people who've looked at this case have asked the question of why none of the students were charged or, frankly, why none of the schools were charged. I think what went on here on the side of the prosecutors – was that they made a discretionary call that even though there might have been evidence to charge the students that ultimately these were kids who were being guided by their parents, their parents were the ones who were paying the money, the parents were the ones who were having the conversations with Mr. Singer and with others and who were guiding their children, and they just made the discretionary call that they were just going to charge the parents and not charge the students. They also had to know that if they charged the students, it was going to be increasingly difficult to get people to plead guilty in these cases. The parents would likely fall on the sword in order to protect their kids, and that's exactly what we're seeing happening here.
1: Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Mintz, a partner of Carter & English. Fire is close to a turning point in its legal battle over the weed killer roundup. According to Bloomberg sources, Bayer has reached verbal agreements to resolve a substantial portion of an estimated 125,000 cancer lawsuits over use of its Roundup. The company denies that Roundup or glyphosate causes cancer, a position backed by the Environmental Protection Agency. But altogether, juries from three trials ordered the company to pay a combined $2.4 billion in damages. Judges later slashed those awards to $191 million. The deals, which have yet to be signed, cover an estimated 50,000 to 85,000 suits. They're part of a $10 billion plan to end the costly legal battle. Joining me is Eric Gordon, a professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Eric, why settle now after battling this for two years? Well, Bayer buyer
0: would like to settle and get it behind it because it's been a big weight on the stock price of buyer. Buyer stock price has gone down something like one third since they bought Monsanto. So the CEO, who was the person who actually did the Monsanto deal, probably wishes he didn't, would like to just put it behind him, move on, get the uncertainty off the uh, back of the stock price.
1: How much certainty is there when this covers reportedly an estimated 50,000 to 85,000 cases out of a total of 125,000? So it seems like there's still a lot of uncertainty there.
0: Yeah, I think to settle it, they're going to have to do something about most of the rest of the cases. Although, if they knock out the big cases, meaning the cases that are being handled by the big gun plaintiff's lawyers, um, and all they have left is the uh, cases that are being run by the lesser-known, uh, lesser resource plaintiff's lawyers, it'll be easier to settle those, those uh, remaining cases because uh, those attorneys just don't have the resources, and I think they will jump on trying to get their cases settled, too.
1: So there are a handful of lawyers that are holding out. Do lawyers who hold out fare better or worse?
0: You know, The lawyers who hold out aren't going to do any better than the rest of the lawyers because any settlement is going to include all of them. Bayer's made it clear that uh, its motivation for settling is to get this behind them. So the ones who hold out might at most get a better deal for everybody. Um, But what they might get is just a delay. And given the uncertainty about COVID, the delay might mean a worse deal for all of the plaintiffs.
1: So let's talk a little bit about COVID before we go on. Buyer backed out of some of the deals due to COVID-19. How did that play in?
0: Well, that puts a little bit of fear into some of the plaintiff's bar, not all of them. Uh, But the COVID COVID has changed everything. Now the prospect of paying out the, the reported $8 billion of cash is less and less attractive to the buyer. I mean, as you know, companies have been scrambling within IBM or Boeing. Companies have been scrambling to get their hands on cash. So the value of getting the cases behind them versus having to shovel out $8 billion starting to look less attractive to buyers. So there's some pressure on both sides to get this settled.
1: Reportedly, buyer use the threat of bankruptcy in settlement talks. Is that something that companies often do?
0: Yes, companies often do it in, the, in these mass talk things. Um, we saw it in uh, a story uh, you and I have talked about a bunch, the, uh, the Purdue Pharma case uh, involving the opioid crisis. Um, if if uh, you go into bankruptcy, uh, then all of these claims are unsecured claims, which in Lehman's language means they get paid at the, at the back of the line with all of the other trade vendors and everybody else. And there might not be much for them. So it's a, pretty, it's a pretty scary threat, although I'm not sure anybody really thinks Bayer would put Monsanto into bankruptcy. But if they did, it changes everything.
1: The range of settlements is so wide, from a few million to a few thousand. How do the settlements get worked out? Is it whose lawyer is better or is it whose claim is better?
0: It's a little of each. Unfortunately, part of it does depend on how feared your lawyer is. So some members of the plaintiff's bar are are intensely feared. Uh, They probably get a little bit more for their clients. But they also will be looking at the individual cases and be looking at two things. The severity of uh, the injury suffered by the plaintiff. And two, how strong is the evidence that the plaintiff's Injury was substantially caused by roundup. So in some cases, you have uh, a groundskeeper who has been using roundup for 30 years. Well, that case seems a little stronger, assuming you buy the idea that roundup is harmful. In the case of somebody using it for 30 years seems stronger than somebody who puts it in their backyard, you know once a year for the last five years. Russell.
1: Let's talk a little bit about Ken Feinberg, who is a renowned mediator. What was his role in this?
0: So Ken plays the role of an honest broker. When you're trying to uh, settle a case, each side poses and postures and rattles sabers, and the other side discounts half of what they say. Having a neutral mediator who is well-respected, there's nobody who's better respected at this than uh, Ken Feinberg, who can say things to both sides and, and they will listen and they will believe it, is very valuable. I mean, think of the things he's been in, you know, Most recently, the Boeing 737 MAX, the Penn State Sandusky sex scandal VW, GM with the ignition switch, all the way back to the BP Deepwater. So he knows how to deal with cases that are very complicated, cases that involve a lot of emotion. So he's the right guy.
1: I'm also curious about the transparency here. The estimate is that there are at least 125,000 claims. That's more than twice the amount of cases FIRE has previously disclosed. So why this lack of disclosure of all these cases?
0: Well, The 52,000 number, which appeared, uh, I think, in the uh, April April of this year quarterly statement that Bayer files, um, Those of the cases, according to Bayer, are cases that have actually been filed in U.S. courts. How you get from 52,000 to two or two and a half times that number is by making an estimate of all of the cases that have not been filed, but that could be filed or will be filed at some point in the future. From Bayer's point of view as well, we don't really know how to estimate that number. That's a guess. Uh, Sure, it's going to be more than 52,000, but the number we know for sure is, is the number that has actually been filed.
1: In the Bloomberg story, did it refer to some lawyers not filing cases under an agreement with Bayer?
0: Yeah, yeah, Tim Lowe had a good story. Jeff Healy had a good story that I, I saw in the terminal. So apparently there is an agreement, and, and this is not uncommon, an agreement that while settlement is going on, everybody who had, not everybody, but you know, the people who agree to this, don't just keep wasting your money and our money filing lawsuits. If there's a settlement, you will be included in it. But you don't have to go to the expense of filing the uh, lawsuit. We don't have to go to the expense of answering it. That will leave actually more money on the table for settlement. So it's not a bad idea.
1: Buyer is still going forward with appeals of early cases it lost. Is that usual in a settlement like this?
0: Well, they can't abandon their appeals. Um, they have to show the other side that if there is no settlement, um, we are going to put you through the appeals process every time you win a case, so that's part of buyer showing its strength uh, to the plaintiffs' attorneys. So that's part of the everybody kind of posturing to show the other side the consequences of not reaching a settlement.
1: So buyer has set aside reportedly ten billion dollars for this altogether, eight billion for these current cases, and two billion for future. With all these ifs and cases outstanding and lawyers not settling, is it possible that buyer won't be able to come in at that number?
0: It is possible. It's possible that the number won't make sense to both sides. It's possible that when you split $8 billion or $10 billion amongst all of the cases, that there are too many cases that will get too little money to get those people to agree to a settlement. And then they would say, well, buyer, you've got to put in more money. And buyer could say, all right, we'll put in another billion dollars or another two billion dollars. And they could say, never mind, because for another billion dollars, we can litigate every one of these cases forever. So the eight billion or the ten billion dollar may not be firm, but it's a clear signal of the range. It's a clear signal to plaintiffs when this gets split up. Don't be expecting $20 billion.
1: Now, why settle if you're going to keep Roundup on the market? It's going to continue to be sold without safety warnings.
0: That is the weirdest part of the settlement story. On the plaintiff's side, if you're really worried about people getting cancer and you really believe that Roundup causes the cancer, why would you agree to a settlement along the lines of, Keep selling it without the warning. Our complaint is that it's unsafe. Our complaint is that you failed to warn people. But as long as you pay us, we're okay with you continuing to do that. From the buyer side, it seems like, well, if they exercise that right and keep selling it without a warning, it seems as if they're asking for another whole batch of new cases from people making the same claims. So that part of the rumored settlement thing is a real head-scratcher from both points of view.
1: You talked about how the CEO, you know, the company wants to put this behind them, and the stock has gone down so much. Explain what's been happening with the CEO through this.
0: So the CEO has had some ups and downs. Um, he, is the, uh, he is the architect of this acquisition. Uh, it was a big acquisition, over $60 billion, widely concerned to, uh, considered to have been a failure. Um, uh, people wonder, how could you have bought all of these liabilities? Didn't you do due diligence? Well, June, of course, they did due diligence. They took on the risk. They just didn't expect it to blow up like this. So this has not been good for him. He's been under a lot of pressure. Recently, it's eased a little bit. Um, The company as a whole buyer has done reasonably well. Uh, Monsanto has done reasonably well, other than this litigation, but the stock price bumped up um, when the stories ran this week about the potential settlement, and the rumors are that the CEO, a gentleman named Hunter Ballman, uh, has regained more support of the equivalent of his board of directors by telling them that he is committed to settling these cases.
1: Does this put his strategy of pairing pharmaceuticals, consumer health, and agriculture to the test?
0: It does put it to the test, although if you look at it from an investment point of view, you can, you can tell two stories. One is these are all good areas. Uh, agriculture isn't going away. We need improvements in agriculture globally. Consumer health, good field, pharmaceuticals. Also a good field. Three good lines of business. The question about the strategy is, if you're an investor, do you need all three of them in the same company? Or couldn't you just buy shares of a pharma company and then shares in a different consumer health company and then shares in a different agricultural company um, and, and get the same result. And if you're actually not interested in agriculture, then you would just buy pharma and consumer health. So uh, all three of them are good areas to be in going forward, but his strategy brings up the constant strategy question of the scope of the firm, the constant investor question of, wait a minute, wait a minute, unlock the value, break these things up, because we can always put them back together by the way we construct our portfolio, by buying stock of three different companies, but some of us just want to be in pharma, and we would value your pharma division, with all the... We would value it higher if it stood alone. So that question will continue to haunt the CEO.
1: And Eric, whose approvals are needed at the company and in the court for these deals to go through, for the settlement to go through?
0: So that's a tricky question because at the court, you have the the federal level. There is the big multi-district litigation proceeding going on uh, in California in front of uh, Judge Chabra, and then there are also... Are state courts. The suits we've seen have been in California and are sort of gathered under California's version of a multi-district litigation proceeding. But there, there are cases all over in, in different states. So the mechanics of this settlement will, will not be easy. This is true in all of these mass tort types of things. But the mechanics are difficult and will take some time So what you'll probably see if there is a settlement progress is an announcement of a settlement in principle. I'm emphasizing in principle because then there's still a lot of hard work to put together the details.
1: And finally, does this settlement remind you of any other mass tort settlements in the past where it's sort of, it seems a lot of piecemeal stuff.
0: The the most recent one I can think of is, is the opioid settlement where The opioid settlement or non-settlement, where you have states, you have cities, you have counties filing suits, you have private people filing suits, lots of different moving parts, including people who don't talk to each other. (laughs) Does the city of Chicago have anything to do with the state of Arizona? Typically not. So that's uh, the other recent one where the mechanics of locking that down, very, very difficult.
1: Thanks, Eric. That's Eric Gordon, a professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by going to our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune to the Bloomberg Law Show weeknights at 10 p.m. Eastern.